Morning's reading is from Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 23. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, fills all things everywhere with himself. Carrie and I were sick last Sunday, so it was so sweet to sing with you this morning. And I was also sick most of the week, and I was supposed to preach right now. And so got to about Wednesday, not feeling well. And so thank you, first of all, for all the people that texted, prayed. We had to turn down meals. We had so many offers. So thank you for all of that. We felt very supported from the body of Christ. Um, Pastor Dave was at a conference. Kyle was at a conference. And so what do we do? Um, Thankfully, we have a fellowship of local churches that we get together with at least once a month. We have lunch. We work through either family issues or church issues and pray together and encourage one another. And so um, you may have noticed we pray for some of these churches uh, during the exhortations over over the course of months. And so um, I was able to reach out to Greg Rabati. He's the associate pastor at Sunrise Bible up near North Branch. And he was willing to come and preach for us this morning. And so it just highlights the importance of We are not one church on our own. We've got everything right. We have a network of churches that we pray for, that we are able to share resources with. And so we're very thankful for that. Um, And so continue to pray for those types of of churches and those types of relationships to be strengthened. Uh, So Greg has been at Sunrise for almost a year. Uh, Before that, he was a senior pastor at a, a couple different churches in Wisconsin. And so I've gotten to know Greg over the last year. Uh, he's married to his wife, Karen. They have eight eight kids. And um, so definitely welcome them after service. And uh, with that, Greg, come on up and share your word this morning. Thank you. Good morning. It is a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, it's a privilege to get to meet many of you. We have been praying for you. We pray for you often as a church. And it is a delight to come and just open the word with you this morning. Uh, We have enjoyed the fellowship with uh, your pastors and just encouraged by them and uh, their work and and the work that you as a church are doing here. And so it's good to open the word here with you this morning. Let's do that. Let's go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. As, you, as you're going there, or as you, um, I'll read that text for you in just a moment. Let me share this with you, an illustration. The day after a great earthquake and a fire at San Francisco, there was a newsboy who was showing a dazed man through the rubble, through all the, the buildings that had been torn apart, through all the ash, all the things that were going on. 
And as this young boy walked through all this rubble, he walked through all of this destruction. He's holding this man's hand, helping him, encouraging him, walking him out of it. He looks to him and he says, it took men a long time to put this stuff together. But God tumbled it over in a minute. And he said to him, he said, Mr., There isn't no use in a fellow to think that he can lick God. (laughs) As we look at Ephesians, we're going to look at the end of this here, and these verses right before, what we're going to look at today, we see the purpose for which Paul was praying for the Ephesians, that they might have spiritual insight, so that they might grasp the significance of really three very crucial things. That they would see and they would know and they would understand first the hope that God provides based on his calling a believer unto salvation. The riches of his glory that he promises to all believers. The greatness of all the power that he possesses. The power that actively operates in and towards all who believe in Christ. As we look at this text today, I want us to see here in verses 20 through 23, as Paul continues his thought, we find him expounding upon the last three crucial things. The great power of God. In verse 19, he declared and he emphasized that all surpassing nature of God's power. And next in this text that we're going to look at, he unfolds how God had manifested that power. Paul declares here the final thing that he earnestly desired the Ephesian believers to understand, to know, and that includes us, to grasp the significance of this truth. And that is the greatness of God's power as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Let's look at our text here. Let me read this for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in the age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him head, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This text packs a bunch of stuff in there for us to look at. It packs a bunch of things in this text that I want to unfold and develop a few of them today. But really, my prayer is, as we go to this, that it would be an encouragement to us who are believers. That we would understand what God has given us in Christ. And that also it would call to those who do not know Christ. That if you're here today and you don't know Christ, he desires and he calls unto you that you would come to him. And that you would trust him for salvation. Let's look at this. I would make this statement, as is in your notes, all the ways in which God has revealed his awesome power to mankind and to his people throughout history, there is nothing that can match what is accomplished through Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that the all-surpassing and incomprehensible nature of God's power is demonstrated most magnificently. There is nothing that compares to it. And so the question for you and I this morning as we look at that truth, as we, as we drive to understand it, as we strive to understand it is, why is it important for us 
As New Testament believers, why is it important for us to grasp the power demonstrated in Christ? And I hope to answer that question for you today from this text. And I would say this, that it is because the church, the body of Christ, needs to comprehend her significance, needs to comprehend the importance of her status in God's eyes, needs to understand that it is she, the church, who is the beneficiary of great power in our day. The church often comes under attack. It is often diminished. It is often minimized. And yet it is the church of all entities in the whole of the cosmos. Only for her and to her is this great power of God through her head, Jesus Christ, supplied. That she might be, that you and I might be, to the praise of his glory. In verse 20, Paul refers to the exceeding greatness of God's power. It's really... A continuation from verse 19 as that, that he worked in Christ. That idea, that word there, worked, is the idea to work or to produce or affect something. Paul is going to declare for us that it, it was that, it, I'm sorry, for us, what it was that God produced. What it was that God affected. What it was that God accomplished through the power of Jesus Christ. He sets forth three things, demonstrations of his greatness, of his power, the greatness of his power. First, the greatness of his power is demonstrated in the, in the resurrection of Christ. We're just coming off of Easter. I know for sure that you heard a message last week on the resurrection. And I know that because I went out and listened to it. <laughs> Enjoyed it, was blessed by it. The resurrection of Christ, when he raised him from the dead, verse 20. Let me give you a couple other texts from the scriptures. Acts 2, 23 and 24 says, And Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing losing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 13.30, Paul in the synagogue at city in Antioch, that the one crucified and laid in the tomb, God raised from the dead, Romans 1.4, and was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. 2 Corinthians 13.4, and I know I'm spewing these out pretty fast, but 2 Corinthians 13.4 says, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. He lives by the power of God. Perhaps the greatest demonstration of God's power in all of history was the raising up of the crucified Christ. That his body lay lifeless cold in the tomb for three days. When through the exercises of God's awesome power, Jesus Christ was in fact brought back to life in a glorified spiritual body. Last year, you may remember there were there was a deadly late-season tornado outbreak. It was the deadliest on record in December. It produced catastrophic damage and numerous fatalities. 
It did this all through the southern United States, the Ohio Valley, from the evening of December 10th to the morning of December 11th. If you remember, the tornado activity began in northeastern Arkansas before progressing into Missouri and then Illinois, Tennessee, and Kentucky. And early estimates suggested that the tornado family identified by some media outlets as the Quad State Tornado due to the storm's similar characteristics to the tri-state tornado that occurred 96 years before that. If it had been a single tornado, it would have surpassed the March 18, 1925 tornado event, which carved a 219-mile path across Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana. This one cut a path of 200, these ones, sorry, there's multiple tornadoes, but cut a path of 250 miles across the affected areas. Why do I bring that up? Not to teach you about tornadoes. (laughs) I bring that up because I want us to realize, do you and I realize that not even the most devastating tornado in all of history, the most devastating natural disaster that you have heard of or lived through in your lifetime In fact, no power, no human or natural or mechanical, which we could conceive of in our minds, could ever match the power of God manifested in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because no exercise of natural power, no matter how great or awesome, has ever or will it ever bring one who is dead back to life. The reality is if we could harness the power of a million stars, if we, it could not create one iota of life in a cold, lifeless body. A body that has been stilled by death. Only God can accomplish such a thing. And God does that through his omnipotent, eternal, all-surpassing power. We must remember that the resurrection was the dominant conviction of the early church. The central theme of their proclamation, the bedrock of their hope. The foundation of their steadfastness. It was their unchanging conviction that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God. That he is risen just as he has said. And why is this conviction of God's power so important? 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, And God raised the Lord, and what? Will raise up us by his power. Will raise up us by his power. See, church, the reality is, the same power that raised Jesus Christ is the same power that will one day raise every follower to his bodily resurrection. It is the same power that allows every believer to face the reality of his or her mortality and to do that victoriously, knowing that Jesus Christ has defeated death. Because of his fellowship and his resurrection, those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ and rest assured though they may face death in this life, that God will, in fact, one day, by his great power, raise you to new life. What a hope. What a glorious truth for you and I. 
The greatness of God's power was demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the next thing I want us to see is that the greatness of God's power is demonstrated in the exaltation of Christ. Look with me at verses 20 and 22. So we looked at the first half of 20, just walking through this text together, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We looked at that in our first point. And he did what? He seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and excuse me, above all authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave uh, gave him as head over all things to the church. And I want us to look at a couple things in this text. I want to pull a couple things out of this. And, the, and, and first of all, I want us to see that God's power has not only raised Christ, but it has also lifted him to a place of exaltation. There are three aspects of Christ's exaltation. And let me, let me share a couple of these with you. His exaltation restored his rightful honor. We grasp that. His exaltation restored his rightful honor. The, the, the event that Paul describes here is the ascension of Christ when he left earthly realm and he took his place at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And the heavenly places, that phrase carries a sense of location here. Heaven where the Lord God dwells. Paul here applied Psalm 100 verse 1 to Christ when it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. To sit at the right hand of the Father is to sit in the place of highest honor, the place of highest glory. There could be no greater expression of honor than this, that God the Father, by the great power bestowed upon Jesus Christ, his Son, the place of highest honor. To understand the significance of this great work of God's power, we must see that not just the glory of the place that Christ now occupies, but we must remember from where he came. See, the reality is we must remember that Christ in obedience set aside the glory that was his from all of eternity. And he did that to come to earth, to take on human nature, and to be born as a man. See, you and I, we must remember that he endured the cruelty and the shame and this sinful world. And he did this, and he was, was willing to be crucified and put to death for what? To accomplish redemption. To accomplish redemption, to understand his exaltation, we must remember the thorns that pierced his brow. We must remember the whip that shredded his back. We must remember the spit that was spattered upon his face, the weight of the cross that drove him right to the ground, the mocking words that crushed his heart, the cold steel that pierced his side. And when God, by his power, elevated Jesus to his side, he lifted his son far above the shame and the degradation and that he had to endure. And once again, he restored him to the honor and glory that was rightfully his from all of eternity. What a privilege to sing of that even today. It's 
second thing about his exaltation is that his exaltation validated his supreme authority. See, God's exaltation of Christ not only set him in a position of honor, but it placed him in a position of sovereign authority. We see this in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Far above. That phrase is high above in regard to rank or power. It's a marker of superior status. Just as Paul used a number of similar words in verse 19 to emphasize their surpassing greatness of God's power. He does this again here. He does the same sort of thing. And this time it's to emphasize the fact that Jesus Christ now occupies a position of authority far superior to anything that exists in the universe. Notice what he says in that verse. He's using these similar phrases over and over, far above all. Authority and power and dominion above every name that is named. And then he says, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Ephesians, um, let, me, let me back up here. There is, with this text, there is some debate to what Paul is referring to when he mentions rule and authority and power and dominion. He could be thinking of earthly rulers and earthly authority, some would say. But in the context here, if we look at the context, what the text is, what I, what I believe the text is saying in the, is that the heavenly places sets the context for us. We're not talking about earthly rulers and authorities. This is probably a reference to heavenly spiritual beings or spiritual powers. Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but what? It's the prince and powers, the principalities of the air. Paul was saying that whatever hierarchy or cosmic, spiritual, angelic powers exist in the heavenly realm, that Jesus Christ is superior to all of them, that he is above and over all of them. And also, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. It is reminiscent of Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Paul in this phrase places Jesus above the scope of all power and authority. It is God who by his power has placed him in the exalted position of sovereign lordship. There is no power. There is no being. There is no angelic or otherwise that exists in this universe. In all of the realm of space and time, both now and forever, that is not subject to the sovereign and supreme authority of Jesus Christ. We live in a day that cherishes power. That happens from the boardrooms to corporations to the heads of governments to the mystical forces of the psychic realm. People admire it. They crave it. Often they live in fear of it. Perhaps Paul desired his readers 
And understand who Paul is speaking to here, his readers who lived in the shadow of Roman power. They were surrounded by a multitude of pagan religions and so-called gods. And for us to remember that the power that be, the powers that be will someday be the powers that have been. The greatness of God's power has exalted Christ and validated his supreme authority over all orders of existence. Christ's exaltation restored his rightful honor. It validated his supreme authority. But notice, also closely related to these, his exaltation established his dominion over all creation. The text says here, it says, and he put all things under his feet and subjection under his feet. Not only did God's placing Christ at the right, at his right hand bring him honor and authority, greater than anything that could be bestowed, but it also established his control over all things. In his exaltation, his right and responsibility to rule and to reign as Lord has been. It has been. Sorry, I lost my spot here. <laughs> Honor and authority greater than he could be bestowed. You, so Psalm, it, it, this here, Paul references another psalm here in Psalm 8.6. It says, you have given him dominion over the words of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That the fact is that not only did he exalt his right hand as responsibility to rule and reign, but he authenticated it. See, in Psalm 8, the psalmist reflected on the wonder of God's creation. The wonder of God's creation of man and the honor that man had been given to rule and to reign over God's creation. Think back, if you will, before the fall. Man had been given the charge to exercise dominion over God's creation. In Ephesians 1, verse 22, Paul applied this principle in its ultimate expression to Jesus Christ. He said, it is, it is, and he emphasized this, that it is Jesus who has been granted by the power of God, the supreme authority to rule, to control, and to exercise sovereignty, sovereign lordship over all that exists. The point is this, what man could not fulfill because of his sin, Christ does. Christ fulfills it. God has set him as Lord over everything. While the official inauguration of his rule and his reign in the kingdom awaits his second coming, it is absolutely assured that he sits even now enthroned beside the Father and the King as King and Lord. The Apostle Paul, in this wonderful, glorious language, heaps, what he does here is he heaps word upon word, phrase upon phrase, clause upon clause, and he does this to underline and to emphasize the supreme exaltation of Christ 
And he accomplished through the great power of God. God, by his power, restored the rightful honor of Christ. He validated his supreme authority and his dominion over creation. And there, and he, and there is nothing, we've established the fact that there is nothing in the universe that holds a position that is higher in honor or authority or dominion than Jesus Christ. See, the greatness of God's power has been demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. But Paul in this text, what he does now is he moves to perhaps the main significance of the exercise of God's power. And for these Ephesians and for all believers, the greatest of God's power is demonstrated in his headship of Christ over the church. His headship in Christ over the church. Notice with me that back here in this text, what's he say? And he put all things under his feet, verse 22, and he gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all in all. Let's look at this language. And he gave him head over all things in the church here for the first time in the letter of Ephesians. Paul does what? He explicitly mentions the church for the first time. Here is what Paul is going to do. Based on all that he has just declared about Christ, he is going to set forth the unique relationship that God has established by the power between Christ Christ and his church. This is found in the idea of headship. Notice a couple of things about this. First, his headship is universal. He is head over all things. The term head is used here to depict that Christ occupies a position of rule and authority over everything. Paul is really just continuing the theme that he has already presented, that Christ has been exalted to the position of supreme honor. He's been exalted to the position of of supreme authority and dominion over every power and every mode of existence, that he is the head over all things. Notice, secondly, that his headship has been bestowed on the church. Notice the language, and gave him, notice what it says, to the church. To the church. Paul says that God has given Christ, the one who is head over everything, the one who rules over everything, the one who has authority and dominion over everything. What did, what did God do with him? He has been given to the church. The idea is that the church is, is not just, the idea is not just that the church included within the realm, is included within the realm of Christ's headship. That was a really confusing sentence. <laughs> not because of the sentence. <laughs> the idea is not that the church is just included within the realm of Christ's headship, along with everything else. No, having established Christ's headship over all things, God then established this unique relationship. That's what this whole thing builds up to emphasize is this unique relationship between Christ and the church. Christ comes to the church by God's power, and notice, bringing with him the full authority of his headship over everything else in the universe. Think about that. Think about that. What an awesome arrangement 
What does this mean? This means that the church holds a unique and privileged and honored position in God's program. It means that the church is the one over whom God has set Christ as her head. It is the church who belongs to him and he rules over her. And all the rule and authority that God has given Christ, who he has exalted, can be used, and notice this, can be used on behalf of the church to benefit the church. To benefit the church. To protect the church. To preserve the church. What does that mean? Can you see why why Jesus could say in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and what is the promise? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There is no other organization in all of history, in all of the universe, that has the honor of having Christ as its head, except the church. No government, no secular organization, no parachurch organization, not even Israel, if you study that on. Only the church has Christ as its head. It ought to make us realize the uniquely special place that the church holds in God's program. It ought to challenge our priorities. When we diminish the church, when we give it a lower place in the realm of all that goes on, do we realize that we have lowered that to whom God has given Jesus Christ as the head? Christ's headship is universal. It has been bestowed on the church. And the third thing that I want us to see in this point is his headship involves his union within the church. And we see this in the text in this phrase, which is his body, the fullness, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul tells us that Christ's headship involves more than just his being a leader or ruler of the church. For the church is called his body. Who's the church? You are. We are. Those who have trusted Christ by faith. Those who have come to repentance of their sin by trusting in the blood of Christ alone for forgiveness of sins. The believers, we are the church. And he tells us that it involves much more than him just being a leader or ruler of the church. For for the church is called what? We are called his body. The church is more than just an organization with Jesus as its president or its CEO. It is an organism with which Christ as its head. This means that at the headship, in this headship, God has established an eternal connection between, notice, between Christ and the church. What are we saying? We're saying this, that the church is a group of believers intimately united with Christ. There is a dynamic spiritual union between Jesus Christ and those who are in him his body. We see some of what that unique relationship involves in part of verse 23. 
where he uses the words, the fullness. He says the fullness of him who fills all in all. The end of that text. The idea here is not that the church, his body, someone somehow fills out or completes Christ. This would imply that somehow Christ is imperfect or incomplete. The thought here is that the church, his body, is filled by him in all of its fullness. It is Christ who gives the church all she possesses. It is Christ who fills the church, fills her with grace and power. Ephesians 3.19 says that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Ephesians 4, 7, by his grace, and, and then in verse 10, Jesus fills the church with all things and following. Verse 10, I would submit this to you this morning, and that is that the church is nothing in and of herself. She is only what she is because of her unique relationship with Jesus Christ as her head. And who it is only because it is he who fills her with the fullness of his presence and his power. See, the reality is, is that he pours out his grace upon the church. It is he who equips her and empowers her to love and obey and to serve him. God's great power has made Christ the head of the church And as such, he supplies the church with all the fullness of divine life and power. It is the church who holds a special place and a position of a special focus in God's program. It is only the church, the body of Christ, as its head. The body that has Christ as its head. As we close out here this morning, as we come to the end of chapter 1, as Paul had been praying and for the Ephesians. We find the Apostle Paul here presenting the manifestations of the all-surpassing power of God that he desired his readers to comprehend and grasp. He desired that they would know them. He desired that they would understand them. That was Paul's prayer. Not just that they would see what the text says, but they would know it and they would grasp it. They would understand it. What does it mean? How does this change my life? How does this change the way that I live this week? That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. That is my prayer for us even today. As we've seen, God has demonstrated the greatness of his power through Jesus Christ. The greatness of his power has been demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. Let me point these out for you. The, the greatness of power has been demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. The greatness of power has been demonstrated in the exaltation of Christ that restored him his rightful honor, validated his supreme authority, established his dominion over all creation. The, God, the greatest of God's power has also been demonstrated in the headship of Christ over the church the full weight of his sovereign rule and authority as the exalted Christ is brought to bear for the benefit of the church as Christ is its head. He brought to bear. It is he who fills the church. 
his body with all power and provision it needs to serve him. She is his and his alone. She submits to him and him alone. See, back in verse 15, Paul began an expression of thanksgiving for the church at Ephesus. This thanksgiving unfolds into this prayer that they might grasp and understand. He pointed them to the hope that they have in him. The riches of glory that lay ahead. And finally, to the power of God that works on their behalf. I believe that he wanted them to see the, mo- see the most. What they wanted them to see the most was this. It is the all-surpassing power that God demonstrated in Christ. He wanted them to see. He wanted them to recognize. He wanted them to understand, and you and I as well, to understand. It is the power that has been given to the church through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the body. It is he who fills the body. It is he who sustains and empowers and equips the body. The church is nothing without him. And yet, if indeed he is our head, and he has supreme authority and all dominion over all, everything that exists, if that is the case, and the word God tells us that it is, Should not the church live for him and serve him with great confidence? Should not the church live for him and serve him with the greatest assurance, with the greatest hope, with the greatest joy? My question from this text to you would be, you and I, would be how important is the church, the body of Christ, to you and I? Do we realize how important it is to God? that God placed the church and the church alone under the headship of his glorious, exalted son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you know Christ, you've trusted him as Lord and Savior. Do you realize what God has given us as his church when he made Christ our head? (laughs) The power to do what God calls us to do does not come from within ourselves. It comes from the power of God through the resurrection of Christ. And as he exalted Christ and gave him his head over the church, the power comes through the resurrection of Christ. The power for you and I to walk in a way that honors and glorifies God tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day as long as the Lord tarries. The power for you and I to, to glorify him with our lives, that we would exalt him in all that we think, do, and say. If you're like me, there's times and periods in your life where you probably feel kind of defeated in that. <laughs> feel like you struggle in that. You waver in that. And yet, in those moments, I find myself trying to do this on my own. <laughs> I find myself trying to be better accepted. If I could just do this, I would please God. Yet I can't. I fail every time. But God, by his grace, helps me to see 
that I can rest in him. And that he who raised Christ, he through that had the power to save me and one day will raise me again after death. He will raise me and I will be with him. It is through that same power that he gives the grace for me to live for him and to glorify him with my life. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, the reality is that we see in this text that that power is not made available to you. It is for the church. It is for those who have trusted Christ. But I stand here and I tell you that everyone in this room has stood in that place at one time or another. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, this message is saying to you, this is what Christ offers you through him, in him, as you come to him and you trust him alone for your salvation. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I would plead with you that you would seek someone out here in the church would love the opportunity to share with you how you can know truly Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. How this text then will be able to be applied to you in your life as you become part of his church, his body.